All right, uh, if you have your Bible, turn to the book of First Timothy chapter 2. Last week we started a new series that we're going to walk through this summer from Paul's letter to Timothy. And I've kind of subtitled this letter and this plan, How Do We Invest? in someone? How do we make a difference in someone's life? There's no doubt that Paul made a difference in Timothy's life, but so often when we're reading the scripture, we look at Timothy as the receivers, but I want us to look at Paul as the giver and say, what is it that we can do that can give what God has given us to others? Last week, as we started this series, we looked at 1 Timothy 12-ish and spoke about how the first gift that we can give to one another is this gift of grace. That as we need it, because we're all broken, we're given it in Christ, but we're not given it just to enjoy and consume. We're given grace to extend grace to others. Those that we know need to know grace, the grace of God through us. Today, I want to talk about what I think is the next thing that Paul identifies It's really, really important that we invest in those around us. Grace is a precious gift unto salvation. This next gift is a gift unto life. It's the key that unlocks the abundant life because it's the key to a relationship with God. Paul is saying to Timothy, Timothy, if you want to live and you want to thrive, you got to know grace. But if you want to live and if you want to thrive, Timothy, you got to know how to pray. You got to know how to pray. And so in these next few verses, Paul teaches Timothy how to pray. Now we think, well, why is Paul doing that? Jesus has already done that, right? You remember when Jesus took his disciples away and said, this is how you should pray. Our Father who art in heaven. Paul doesn't use any prescriptive language here because he's trying to, I think, soften Timothy's heart. That his heart would always be tender before God. That every word he says would be a prayer. Every thought that he thinks will be listening in prayer. And so let me read 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting at 1. First of all, Paul says, I urge that petitions and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good, and it pleases God, our Savior, who wants everybody to be saved and all to come to the knowledge of truth. 
For there is one God and one mediator between God and humanity, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. I've been appointed a herald, an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. And a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Paul starts his class. Timothy, take a seat. It's almost like he works up to the blackboard or the whiteboard that they have now. And he says, first of all, our first lesson is going to be on prayer. But he's not just talking about this first lesson being prayer because it's top of his curriculum. He's saying, I want to teach you prayer Because prayer is of primary importance in your relationship with God. Imagine knowing someone who is brilliant and beautiful and wise and smart and loved you and cared for you and was with you, but you never spoke to them. That's what Paul is trying to address. There is one who has adopted you into his family. You've got to talk to him and you've got to listen to him. First of all, this is the most important thing. I urge you. It's not just saying I ask you, I want you. I think it would be helpful if you did. He's saying, I urge you with everything inside of me, I want you to get this because there are untapped riches that you can tap into if only you will start to pray. First of all, this is most important. I urge you with all the passion inside of me that petitions and prayers and intercession and thanksgiving be made for everyone. He's not saying pray for this, 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 and this. He's saying, let me give you some categories. Why is he saying that? I think because different circumstances require different prayers. It's the first thing I think that Paul is teaching us. Different circumstances require different prayers. We're told to pray continually, but the type of prayer that we pray changes depending on so many circumstances and situations. He says sometimes you need to pray petitions. What what does he mean here? He's saying you need to pray your list. We all have a list of some kind, right? Now, now, whether we write it down or not, we've all got a list of things that we need to pray for. He says, that's okay. There's a, there's a time to pray for that. You know, I was convicted of this uh, recently and continue to be because I, 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 I hear other people and then when I reflect, I hear myself praying rather shallow prayers. Oh, Lord, please let there be a parking spot right there. Oh, please, Lord, let me be that shirt in my size because I like that shirt, right? 
There's nothing wrong with praying for our lists. We're to pray with petition. This word prayers here talks about our relationship with God. It talks about conversation with a friend. It talks about getting to know someone so much that we can trust them, that when we leave the deepest, most vulnerable thoughts of our hearts with them, we can trust them to us because we know them. Sometimes we need to go to our list. Sometimes we just need to know that God is with us. Many of you know the name Mother Teresa. She was interviewed once about what her prayer life looks like. The rather arrogant reporter said, ma'am, what does it look like when you go to God in prayer? She said, nothing. I just sit there. And the reporter was a bit kind of blown away by this. So he says, okay, well, when you're just sitting there with God, what does God do? What does he say? She says, nothing. He just sits there. And she's reminding us that there is a place just to sit and be with God. Paul says, pray with petitions. Give God your list. He cares about your list. Go to God because he's your father in relationship with him. Go to God with intercessions. These are your pleas. These are the things a little bit deeper than your list. These are the things that cause agony in your heart that we threat about, that we worry about, that we wrestle with. God wants to hear from those as well. There are times when the trivial prayer isn't enough. There are times when it feels that just sitting with God isn't enough. There are times when we have to dig deep within us and say, Oh, God, have mercy on us. Oh, God, would you intervene here? Because if you don't intervene here, we're all in trouble. There's a time for that. Pray with petitions and with prayers and with intercession and thanksgiving. This word for thanksgiving here is uh, Eucharist, where we get the word Eucharist when we celebrate communion. He's saying pray with gratitude. You know, so often we're we're praying our lists and we're, we're praying in God's presence and we're praying our pleas, but we forget this thanksgiving, right? Paul says to Timothy, different circumstances require different prayers. How do I need to deal with all the noise, all the emotion, all the stuff around me before you today? Different circumstances require different prayers. Petitions and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving be made for everyone. Don't miss that word, everyone. You know what it means? Everyone. (laughs) Everyone. One of the most 
earliest spiritually forming disciplines in my life was when I was growing up at home and I would walk down from my upstairs bedroom and see my mom in the dining room with her Bible open and her little spiral notepad that had pages and pages and pages and pages turned over. And that was her prayer journal. And I remember thinking, there's a lot of names on that piece of paper. There's a lot of people that my mom was praying for. She was on the right track because Paul says, everyone. The first thing that Paul is teaching about prayer is that different circumstances require different kinds of prayers. If our prayers are just a list, we need to expand. If our prayers are sitting just before God quietly, that's great, but there's more than that. If our prayers aren't touching the deep pleas of our heart, Go there. This is where it gets a little bit harder. Different circumstances require different prayers. Secondly, difficult times require hard prayers. Difficult times require hard prayers. Verse 2, pray for everybody. It means everybody. But pray especially for kings and all those who are in authority. Do that so that you can live a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Difficult times require hard prayers. The king in this day was a guy called Nero, who was oppressive, and cruel and evil. History records hundreds of stories of Nero's evilness. And on top of his evilness, part of the manifestation of that was that he hated Christians. There was a fire in Rome. There was a mistake in ownership of his government, but he chose to blame the Christians And the Christians were persecuted and rounded up and killed because of his lie. And on and on and on. Story after story of an evil and oppressive leader. And Paul says, in these difficult times, pray for the kings. And pray for those who have authority over you. Many of you have been in leadership with authority, and you know how hard that role is. Whether that authority is a teacher in a classroom, or a businessman who has people underneath them, or a volunteer who has volunteers serving with them, or a parent in a family who has responsibility for others. Being in authority is hard. Our default towards those in authority, Paul said, should not be criticism, but should be prayer. We must pray for those in authority, even if the authority over us is evil. Why? So that we... And that word we is really important because it's saying collectively us. We, our lives will get better or worse because of who's in authority over us. 
Difficult circumstances require different prayers. Difficult times require hard prayers. Why? So that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life. Man, wouldn't that be nice? In fact, I think we look at this phrase, tranquil and quiet life, with like Pollyanna glasses on, because the idea of a tranquil and quiet life is so far removed from us. But at the foundation of a tranquil and quiet life is not some um, kind of slow-paced chamomile tea drinking, sitting on the porch on a hot day life. At the foundation of a tranquil and quiet life is God's peace. If a leader is peaceful, then we're experiencing peace. So it makes sense to pray for peace for our leaders, and in our society so that we can live a tranquil and quiet life. Paul talks about this elsewhere in the book of Thessalonians. He says, make it your ambition to live a quiet life. Love that verse that's become a personal mission statement. In fact, we got a little, um, little board in our bathroom that we kind of put things on. And it said for, I don't know, a couple of years now, make it your ambition to live a quiet life. And I'm still hoping for the day <laughs> when just for an hour I'll be able to experience that. In our house? In our house. <laughs> you said that, not me. <laughs> That's God's hope, that we would live a quiet and tranquil life in godliness and dignity. This phrase, godliness and dignity, is so important. It's so important for us as a church. To live in godliness talks about how we connect with God. Are we living before Him in ways that honor Him, that reflect Him, that become Him? We live in godliness and dignity. This dignity is pointing to those around us. Are we living in ways that love those around us? Are we giving dignity to those who are close to us, those who are far from us, those who disagree with us, those who think differently about us? First thing that Paul is saying as he teaches to pray, different circumstances require different prayers. Secondly, different times require sometimes very hard prayers. These hard prayers, verse 3, is good. And it pleases God, our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and everyone to come to the knowledge of truth. If you've got like a paper Bible here, that is worth underlining. If you've got an electronic Bible, I don't know how you do that, but, but highlight it. God, our Savior, wants everyone to be saved. Does that mean everybody will be saved? No. Does the fact that not everybody will be saved and God doesn't get his, his will undermine God's authority? No. But God loves people, and God longs that all people would come to the knowledge of truth. You know, have you heard the phrase, well, yeah, I like him, but I don't, no, I love him, but I don't like him? 
That's a convenient excuse for us. That excuse gets filtered when we pray for our enemies. Because if we pray for our enemies, how we think about them and feel about them changes. Finally, divided situations require a unifying Christ. It was so important that Timothy got this. Divided situations require a unifying Christ. This is what he says, for there is one God and one mediator between God and humanity, the man, Jesus Christ. There is one God. He is good and he loves us. And there is one mediator between the God who loves us and us. Some of you will have worked with a mediator in lots of different settings. You know what a mediator does. A mediator brings people together, brings separated and segregated people back together. A mediator is a bridge builder. And Jesus was the perfect mediator between us and God because he was fully God and because he was fully man. While he came from heaven, he had a foot in both camps and was able because he knew the love of God and he knew what it meant to walk in human flesh to bridge that gap between us and God that our sin had created. There was a separation. There was a break. There was, as C.S. Lewis said, a great divorce between the God who loved us and us. And fault for that separation is all on us. But God doesn't give up. And he sent a mediator, one who could stand in the middle between God and humanity and say to humanity, be reconciled to God. As a church, that's our message. In relationships, that's our message. Not that we can solve it, not that we have the answers, not that we have an exclusive claim on what we think is right. Jesus is our message. Jesus is our mediator. I love at the end of verse 5, he's talking about this one God, the mediator between God and Jesus Christ. And he says, the man, Jesus Christ. Now, he says the man probably because he's saying Jesus is both God and human, and that's what's needed for a mediator. But as I was reading that this week, I read it a little bit differently. I read it as Jesus Christ is the man. <laughs> like, he's the one. He's the man. The one who stands in the gap. The one who brings and pulls all things together. So listen to this week. 
you've probably heard it, to a little sermon clip by Reverend Dr. Lockridge, who was a pastor who died in 2000, but he was preaching about Jesus Christ. And I want to wrap up my words today by reading his definition of Jesus to you. We pray at different times needing different prayers. Difficult situations require hard prayers. But a divided world needs the unifying love of Jesus Christ. Who is this Jesus? Bow your heads with me and listen to these words. My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful and he's impartially merciful. He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He is God's son. He is the sinner's savior. He is the peak of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be our all-sufficient Savior. He supplies strength for the weak. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the leper. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the aged. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meager. He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway for deliverance. He's the pathway of peace and the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. His light is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting and his love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. He's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't get him off of your head. You can't outlive him and you can't live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him. But they found out that they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. 
And Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave couldn't hold him. That's the man, Jesus Christ. 